Welcome to the Startup Microdose podcast with me, Oliver Jones, and my able co-host, Ed Stevens. This conversation is with Julien Khaled. Julien founded e-commerce giant Made.com in 2010 alongside Brent Hoberman, Chloe McIntosh, and Ning Lee. The company posted revenues of £173 million in 2018, up 37% from the previous year, as it continues to expand geographically and refine its service in existing territories. Julien stepped back from his executive role at Made in 2017, and now works as a mentor, advisor, and investor for promising startups and their entrepreneurs. Julien gives a meticulous account of the Made.com journey, from concept to success, as well as some insights into his future projects, including mental health tech and blockchain-based asset management. So, without further ado, we bring you Julien Khaled. Good afternoon, everyone. We are here with Julian Khaled. Julian, thank you for joining us. Thank you, guys. Uh, so we want to talk eventually about Made.com, but I think in the build-up to that, um, can you tell us how uh, your life panned out up until that point, so what you were doing that led to Made.com? Sure. The thing is, my whole life was planned a few, like, 25 years in advance. <laughs> uh, no. I, uh, I had a pretty normal life, I guess. Uh, I, I'm French. I was born in a city called Nantes. I had a normal education, family with five kids, normal parents. My mom was a teacher. My dad was like a consultant in IT on, 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 the, on the organizations. I went to business school, which is biggest, I mean, the most normal, non-choosing way of like going into studies. Yeah. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what I wanted. I got lucky enough to just uh, get into one of the good ones. And I did a bit of everything there. You know, when, you, when you're in a business school, you're learning stuff. Everything is very generalist. You get to do internships. And you think you're going to do internships in what, in, in what you're going to do in life. On, on, yeah, I want to do sales, or I want to do marketing, or I want to do purchasing, or I want to do banking. And, and very quickly, you realize that what they teach you is what you don't like. And it's very normal because you have an image of these jobs on and you have no clue what they what they mean. I did sales in a shop. I did sales in door to door, not because I wanted to do that in life, but I mm. like it. Uh, I kind of like to challenge. Mm. I did uh, buying for CRM for a big company called Danone, and I did banking. Um, I was in, in leverage buyout, or financing deals. At the time, like you were doing a business school, on, on, on the, the, the target of every most of the people were to either get hired at McKinsey or BCG or a Morgan Stanley or a big bank or Danone or L'Oreal. That's mm. the that's a bit of a caricature, but nobody wanted to be an entrepreneur in in, in two thousand and five or six. I, I I finished in six, and I landed in entrepreneurship. I think by by chance or by mistake. The the little story is I was going for lunch and I called my friend like should we go and he was like I'm just just getting the paperwork to to subscribe and potentially qualify to the third year where you specialization in entrepreneurship, which was quite uh, demanded there. Um, and I was like, you know what, get me one. And I got in. On, on First of all, I remember my internships were interesting before that, but I, I, I was always feeling that I was very, very far from the real world. Um, when you do buying, especially for a big company, especially if you do buying for marketing, uh, material, it, it, you have no impact on what's going to be in the in the shop next day. Um, and when you do uh, when you do financial deal and you help people buy companies, it's, it's, it's the same thing. And then you learn about the, all those guys who created companies and they were smart, but they were especially hardworking and it's super hard and it's super complicated, but they have an impact. That's the first thing. And it's very hands-on. And, and I kind of got the bug at that moment. 
I was like, shit, I want to do something that makes a difference in a way. And I ended up by mistake this time again, <laughs> uh, working for, you had a three month internship to do there in, 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 at the right hand of uh, a CEO of a company. It can mm -hmm. be a small one, can be a big one. And I work for a small investment fund that was usually doing hospitality, hotels, and they just had decided to do, to buy, buy over a business. And the business was importing furniture. So that's the beginning of the story. Mm. I got there just because I thought it was cool and I would travel to China and I would be a bit of the Indiana Jones there and learn a lot of things and, and be very hands-on. And I ended up doing, I mean, they had a CEO that they had bought in on the guy the plug didn't work and he left on, on the ex-CEO who was a bit old, had to jump back in on the guy from the investment fund, had to had to jump in the, the business too and they needed a, like a, a fresh brain, a mm. dude who didn't have a lot of too many preconceived ideas to come and help. And I worked there and I did two years of like going to factories. Uh, it's the moment where you're just out of school on, on your assistant over there is She's programming like tours of factories and you have two a day and you're like, no, I want to do four. And you had a plane every day on the hotel. And I learned the job and I learned how you source products. A bit of the hard way and I made my mistakes with some other people's money. And, hmm. and I could actually see how, how a company can go well or could, can actually go best for very, very basic or small reasons like hirings hmm. or, or uh, small procedures or a fax machine that doesn't work. All that has a huge impact on, on, the, on the small companies. And I left after two years because I had a choice to make, which was either I, I was going there and staying there and I could be the, the MD of the company very young after a few years, but I had to go and shake hands and do the account manager in the furniture industry. And I was like, do you want to do that? Mm. It would be really cool to be running a company, but it's not yours. And do you really want to be in that field all your life? And, and my choice at the time was like, no, um, I don't want to, I want to, to create a business or to be as close as creating a business as possible. And, and I went out and I had three ideas. Either I start a company, but I didn't have the, the, it was either all the time, either the timing or the idea or the person to do it with that was not right. I almost started my, my co-founders had made first business. So Ning's first business, we almost did it together. I looked at it and I didn't follow on. And I was looking either for this or being the right hand of a big guy in the company. Mm. Or, or launch a subsidiary or manage a subsidiary of a big group or or be an investor but not in a big not in big banking it, it makes a lot of cash but i wanted to to work with smaller companies so i did that and i remember going for interviews on telling i actually i didn't know which firms to go for so i applied to vc firm telling them i wanted to do vc and i applied to uh, lbu firms telling them i wanted to do lbu and to growth firms telling them i wanted to do growth and I took the I took the um, the directory. I'm sorry, that A on B on. I ended up in, in a company called Alliance Entrepreneur, which starts with A. Uh, <laughs> by chance, and I told all, the, all those guys I was telling them I don't want to do furniture in my life. I don't want to be doing sourcing or especially to work with China because I, I it's hard and like I want to learn something else. But I got bored very quickly. First of all, secondly, I knew that industry more than a lot of people. I mean, more than 99% of the people who never worked in it. Mm -hmm. And then Ning had started this first company before and he had left. He was traveling the world on the short stories. Brent gave him a call and was like, dude, you know what? Let's go on that business together. And Brent called Ning, Ning called me. Chloe was working with Brent at the time. And we just decided to, to jump into that business, which was not very dissimilar from what Ning had started before in France. And the business was made. And the idea of the business was very simple. Just jump back 10 years ago. If you were, if you were a customer, a, a, a person that had a bit of cash and wanted to buy 
a table, the, the choice on the market was was not very large. Either you could go, if you just wanted a table, if you just wanted like a, a, a side table on, on that was all, you had a, a very good Swedish company doing amazing side tables for 9.99. Mm. The, the great thing is they were not even bad looking, mm. but that's for the functional part. If you wanted something a bit better, a graduation from IKEA, you had, everything was either shit look or mm. bad quality, mm. Are, are too expensive. Problem in that is knowing the business, and I think that's a, a big important thing, is knowing that industry. We knew that the image we use is, is always the same. We knew that that 2,000 pound sofas on the market was actually costing $200 in the factory. Wow. Add up transport costs, it actually costs you to, to 200 pounds landed in the UK, but then you, then you sell it to wholesalers for like 400 to 500, and then they sell it to retailers for a bit more and then it ends up to the customer for 1,000 to 2,000 pounds. Mm. The problem though was even with those margins, the whole, the customers were not happy. Designers at the time, you had a lot of like talented people, but they didn't have access to market and everybody in the value chain of the industry was losing cash. So for as long as I had known, and I have known now the, 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 the furniture industry, most of the players are losing cash. Even with those margins built in. Yeah. Just because I'll try to dig into that now. It's like, if you're any, if you're just an importer, you're taking risk on stock and you take you take a 50% margin on everything you sell before before delivering it to your to retailers. But the risk you take on the stock, on the, the, the development time in, in creating it, on, on, on all the costs associated to your business are quite high. If you're a retailer, you have a lot of risk too and you have to, mm. at the time you had to, I was going to say you had to run shops. But to be honest, running an e-commerce business is as, almost as expensive as running shops. More easy, more easy to scale. So now all those guys were losing cash. So we just, we looked at the industry, we just re-engineered it mm. in a way that we thought would work. So the, the very basic on, I think simple and a bit a naive idea of the very beginning of made was to say, guys, we're gonna design new items. So we have two things we're selling to customers. The first thing is original products. Mm -hmm. So things which are different to what you find on the market. And it's obviously uh, very, it can be contested. Of course, everything looks like each other, but if you really design it in house, it's going to be different. So different, good quality on cheaper. And the way we do that is we said, I'm going to design my products. I'm going to work directly with factories. The problem if you want to work directly with factories, you need to bring them volumes. So mm -hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to actually focus on the very limited range of products and I'm going to pre-sell it, but I'm going to buy that sofa for $200. I'm going to get it. I'm going to get ready to buy it and I'm going to put it online for 500 which is 400 plus VAT roughly. I'm going to be okay with that 200 margin. And the whole thing is I'm going to pre-sell it to customers. Well, as I'm going to pre-sell it, I'm going to get cash in advance. I'm going, to be, I'm going to be able to group orders and I'm going to have thousands. So you'll wait for one item to build a cumulative yeah. bulk purchase. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but what's the trade-off between saying um, 50 customers have now bought that item, we're going to trigger the purchase to waiting for maybe 100 to 200 customers to now trigger the purchase of the item for extra um, sort of discounts. And doesn't that lead to a, a really long delivery window? Oh, you, you know everything. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's a very good question. So you have economies of scales in our industry if you buy a lot more. Mm. But the gap between buying, buying in the MOQ of, an, of a factory, like going directly to the factory, to, I mean, the gap from like buying in bulk from wholesalers to going directly to the factory is huge. You save a lot. But then buying 50 sofas or buying 100, the difference is not that big. Right. Okay. Or, or buying one, actually. Buying one of each. If you go to the UK factory and you say, okay, I want, I want 30 sofas, but I want 30 different ones. Or I actually want 30 of the f same ones. 
you're going to have factories telling you that actually the price is the same. Because the way it's designed is the way manufacturing in the UK is designed for these kind of items doesn't change a lot. So it changed a little bit. Yeah. And if, if you go to Asia, you will you will have economies of scale. But it's, it's mainly that your negotiation power is, is better. But the bigger thing was that we said, um, we were like, it's going to be so cheap that thousands of people are going to buy in a week and I'm going to feel my... You have two constraints when you buy from the Far East is what you call the MOQ, which is the minimum order of quantity, minimum quantity orders uh, from the factory per item. And the second thing is uh, buying by full containers. Mm. You can actually import stuff like you can, I mean, you can split a container fill with some other people. Some people can manage it for you, but it's expensive, it's complicated, costs a lot of money, as I said, and and, and on things break in transport because you have a, a bit more of handling. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second thing is if you buy smaller com- uh, quantities, your factories don't like it. They, they, they like to be placed big orders, I mean, big for a size. So you buy in bulk, but to, to, to get that, you need volumes. And we quickly realized that the idea might be amazing. The, the design might be really good. And we, we launched actually, so we launched on, on March 21st, 2010, after having a developed a website in six weeks. So our CTO and our, our creative director were really good. On our product development team developed like two ranges of products. I mean, in, in like two months. Uh, we had a website with two items. Mm. Who were they? They were a pine table. I think I remember it was like 60 centimeters like large on a bit long called the Oliver table, right? Mm. Uh, quite neat Very design. Nice. And we had a pair of two chairs in aluminum called the Navy chairs. And we had, uh, that's going to be a bit more of a debate. We had uh, <laughs> a tall, naked, blonde lady lying up, lying down on the chairs at the main image. On your website? Page. Yeah, we thought it was cool. A real lady? It was really not cool. But, uh, <laughs> a real lady? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, thought, we thought that. That was like, you know when you think you have a very bright idea? Yeah. <laughs> and you're like... You're like, it's going to get people to speak on, by the way, it's so original, <laughs> which is not on <laughs> um, the whole thing was, but it, it was justified in our mind because the whole thing was we were selling items without extra cost, without extra without, layers of magic, without clothes, <laughs> without clothes. <laughs> I don't remember what the, what the, the whole thing was, but, uh, the idea was there. It was like naked did you, products. Did you get rebuked for it? Uh, you can't imagine how many <laughs> emails we were getting. So, but now, if you did that in 2019, I think it might be might be worse. It might be worse. It's just yeah. getting worse. But it's to be honest, that was a, that was a fun, smart idea. On when we stopped, some people were like, "Oh, you should not have stopped." But that was not really smart. Yeah. That's a technique that a lot of people had used before. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the idea actually came from uh, I remember in December so we decided to, to, to launch the business together with Chloe on, on sorry on Ning on Brand in December 2009 so in December 2009 we were in China with Ning and Chloe having a, having a drink in the evening um, and we're like shit we need to we actually need to show the size of the items on, on the website so what should we have on the one came up with the idea of having a dead stuffed animals um, that would be like quite cool and original and quirky and, and then somebody said yeah, dead, dead animals and why not naked ladies? And that was a joke. Uh, and then we stopped. We're like, this, see, we thought that was cool. We stopped pretty quickly because, yeah, we got emails of people just like harassing us. But the main problem was, was you can't really run ads on Google with naked people on it. Mm. Plus, I can't even tell you how complicated it is to find real models who would accept. Really? To pose naked. Oh, I'd do it. Have yeah. <laughs> you got given shares in made.com as your, yeah. as your initial I, fee? I was not allowed in the photography room. <laughs> so Chloe was running it. So we, we, we started that and 
And we Wait, sorry, so yeah. your female co-founder spearheaded that initiative. Well, he wasn't allowed to be in the room when the photos. No, but I just no, wanted she, she, was, she was running the photo shoots. Yeah, it wasn't okay. her idea. That was oh, okay, a, that was fine. a collective decision. Mm. <laughs> she agreed to it. Was it was, was it, a collective responsibility? <laughs> was it was it ga- bad PR created any good PR? Was there any positive? You know, outcome? at that time you're like any PR is good, mm. and you think it's actually good in any way. Uh, you make a lot of stupid mistakes. I remember it was the election time in 2010 on fourth range of items was was uh, armchairs mm. with a Union Jack flag made in the UK on <laughs> Brexit <laughs> on we <armchairs>. were, <laughs> we were Wednesday evening and we were running the newsletter on Thursday and it was 6 p.m. and we just brought Win or creative director in the room like when we had an amazing idea you, we have that you're gonna find that picture of like three naked people and we're gonna retouch the head and these are gonna be the candidates. And <laughs> um, um, that's going to be our newsletter with with the armchair. Or do you think it's a good uh, idea? On this, who were the one. candidates then? In 2010, uh, was it uh, Milivan uh, and Cameron? Yeah, yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. But was first Gordon... of all, no, nobody nobody talked about it. Yeah, so that was a bit of a fail. <laughs> so that was not that bad. Uh, you make you make mistakes. You yeah, make PR yeah, mistakes. Yeah. So we ran that first batch of orders. I mean, of of, of items on the website. Mm. So March 21st, 2010, we opened it. Yeah, we had a, an amazing team of investors. We had Brent. I mean, Brent was our co-founder or, or non-exec co-founder. We had his fan co-founders, I mean, uh, affiliated to him, uh, investing. We had Mark Simoncini with his fund in, in, the, in France called Jana Capital Investing. We had an amazing uh, business angel called John Hunt. We had a great story. Mm. It was new to the market, in a big market, big people following us who were like, hey, it's going to be a big PR blast. We had good PR, but PR bl- you never get like a huge PR blast. Mm. We didn't have cash yet on the bank account. We were re- we were raising the cash, so we, we didn't go big in marketing. And, and we launched the products, and, and we had so little orders, so few that we could. We were actually googling on Facebooking everybody, and, and that was pretty fun. But yeah, day one you have one, and then you have three, and then you have zero, and zero, and two, and four, and everything. But that's normal. I mean, mm. who launches a business without any marketing? I mm. think that they're gonna you're gonna sell a, a thousand items being three French co-founders in the UK, selling things half the price that they should be if they were being sold in normal website, looking too good on delivering in four months. Yeah. But we had sales. So the big thing is we had sales. So you had people who were willing to, to bet on you. So first first week we had two items and then we had a, a, a table on a pair of two chairs on, on two coffee tables in two colors. And then we had a table on a pair of two chairs on four coffee tables on five lamps and I still remember it. And, and we build the catalog this way. The thing though is, so you wait after two weeks, and you haven't you haven't actually got enough orders to fill the full containers of the first product. So you make choices, and that that's an important thing if you are starting your company is you need to make quick choices. Wait, so could, would you be licensed to um, have certain project products with the manufacturer? You could put them on the website. If they didn't hit the sales volume, you could just not deliver on that, and then you just switch to a product which has hit the volume, and then get that uh, ordered. Legally speaking, you can do whatever you want. I mean. I don't know whether you can do whatever you want, but you find a way of doing it. So I guess we could have refunded customers. Yeah. But then it's a commercial decision. Yeah. What do you want to do? So I think if you want to deliver those orders, you have you have two choices. The first one is you buy in smaller quantities, and you go back to your factory and you say, okay, I want I want ten, and I want five, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do a split of a container with someone. Or you have another way of doing it, and that's where you make decisions. And they are quick ones, and they sometimes are good, sometimes are bad. And you just need to, to switch. And I think we've we've been pretty okay at doing, taking more good decisions than bad decisions, on taking them quickly. And we just decided to say, okay, we sold. I don't remember the numbers, but ten on twenty, we're gonna buy thirty on a hundred. 
Mm. Are we going to sell those before they hit the UK? On, on, you know what? The only thing is, is going to be less risk of being late to the manufacturing is, is not okay. On, on some people will be happier. And that's one of the rules in retail is under promise on our deliver on your promise. So we two things we did two things. We kept building the catalog week after week, after week from a website with two items to a website with now 10,000. I mean, mm. a bit less, but we developed more than 10,000. And we switched a bit the model to something that were, was a bit more customer friendly, where they could actually get items much quicker with a bit of pre-ordering on a bit of uh, negotiating better lead times or working better with our suppliers. So that, that was the beginning. We were very excited launching the UK. That were, so the first big thing is, I think you have a lot of challenges on, when you build a business and they, they come in phases. The first one is to build your offer. The second one was to show that we could actually have people buying. Mm. I mean, honestly, it's too good to be true. So we actually had customers buying. The third moment of truth is, will you be able to deliver on your promise? So it's super key. Um, on, when you're in a business like that, it's very complicated, it's very risky. Uh, you're on very long lead times, things can go wrong. It can go wrong because of your manufacturers, it can go wrong because of shipping, usually not. It can usually go wrong because of deliveries. Um, luckily, things didn't go wrong with, with manufacturing at the very beginning, even though we, it, it is very, it's, it's very important to quality control every piece. How did you um, find your, your manufacturers? Is that based on pre-existing relationships you had? Yes, I, I would say yes. We had, we had one big trend in the business is we knew our business. So Chloe was knew a lot of designers. She knew how to design products. I, I take shortcuts, but mainly, mainly she, I was not. She asked me for, if you asked me what I would have released with my taste, it would have been pretty bad looking <laughs> or very commercial. And Ning and myself had worked in the business like that before. I mean, the, Ning had a similar one on, I had worked in the, in the furniture industry before. So we knew how this was done and we knew the risk. So I knew that you do not go to Alibaba on place an order from those dudes straight away. Or you do not go to a fair, which is better, on place an order straight away. You need to edit the factory, you need to check that they are good, you need to know who their customers are. There are a lot of regulations. And, and we knew that. And then we had another strength is we had a network of people we can work we could work with. So some suppliers, even if we didn't reuse most of those. And we had people we had worked with before. And that uh, a big pro. So we on on the topic of the suppliers, though, it's a big one if you, if you do products, yeah. is there is something which is really weird in this planet, is it is impossible to know, it's very complicated. There is no directory of suppliers. I'm saying that on purpose because there is one that was built to be one, to be it, which is Alibaba. But if you go to Alibaba, it, it, the quality of the things is, is not, of what you find is not amazing. You have to do your due diligence. So it's impossible, it, it's very hard to know who is buying where and what's the best factory there to do these kind of products. It's a very weird word in furniture where you, you think at the beginning that most of the value in what you are selling is gonna be in finding the right supplier that the other guy don't have. At the end of the day, it's more in the design, in the process, in, the, in, your, whole, in your whole engineering process. So we found factories bit by bit. What was your uh, trade-off of steering new product design versus you know, sticking with a factory you knew was good yeah. and saying they can build these items, therefore our next item should be something they can build versus going and seeking a new supplier or a new factory for an item that you wanted to build but took more risk on a new, uh, new manufacturer? This is a very good question. You do both in par in parallel. Tandem. Yeah, parallel Power is a very parallel, very yeah. tough word to to say with a French accent. <laughs> <laughs> too many R and too many L's. Uh, so you do you do both together. 
So you try to develop new items with, you, with your factories, and it has two, two positives. The first one is just what you said, is you know the factory, they do a good job. And the second one is you group your orders together in the same containers. So it's very good for supply chain. But then, even if you are dealing with upholstery, which is one of the easiest items to manufacture by opposition to a chair or to a lamp where you have like norms on, on, on tech, I think we have now, even now we have a network of roughly 10 factories to do surface because not all of them can do everything. Mm. And you can take one of your surface that you make in the UK and you, you, if you get much bigger quantities, you want to get it remade maybe in China or somewhere else. So you pay the right, if you pay the right price, you get the, right, the same quality. And the factory can't make it just because they can do some shapes and they can't do the other ones. You do a bit of both. And, and did that ever come back to, to bite you and you took a decision on a factory where you, you regretted it and yeah. what were the challenges? We made a lot of mistakes. Especially in factory, in identifying the suppliers you want to work with, because that's what they there is what they tell you they can do. There is whether you're big enough to be a priority for the factory. There is those who raise the prices. There is change in management, so you make a lot of mistakes. The great thing though is the the, the bigger you grow, the more you've been in business with the same factories. So I'd guess that it's a very it's a very rough number on this. It, it's not the right one, I guess, but with every factory, if you enroll two new factories, there is one which is still going to be with you in two years, and the other one is going to be not with you anymore. Mm. There are rules to enroll factories if you want to go quicker, which is stop trying to look for the cheaper one. Mm. Honestly, stop trying to use, I, not in made, but in my previous business, I wanted cheaper products because we were, my first business where I was hired, we were very low end. I was trying to find the cheapest factory in the planet because one dollar made a difference. So I ended up, in, in crappy places <laughs> in the countryside, like nowhere, where I was visiting a factory and I just realized it was, it was a house with people making stuff in the garden. Because of course I was going for price, but if you were looking for much better quality, you could get very good quality. On the, on the shortcut for that is, is go to factories that are already working with bigger company than you. Mm. On the other thing you get there is, you're gonna do your audit of the factory anyway. You can only rely to the, on the other ones. But running your quality audit on um, ethics, on, 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 on workforce, on, on social, on environment things, and uh, it is much quicker if you work with a factory that is working with John Lewis on Habitat, on Hills, on Conrad, because these guys have big standards and you're a small company, so take shortcuts. And when did you know that, so we've talked a bit about the very early stages, yeah. when did you know that you were on something and the traction really started to pick up and the metrics and you were like, was there a moment when you were like, wow, this is going to work. No. No? I have an answer to this one, but that's, um, it's actually giving credit to the right people. Is I, I think I, the day I knew it was okay was a few years ago only because, um, because we had the right team. We had the right teams and we were growing and finally growing without being too much at risk. I'll tell you why. I think people in the press on customers know much quicker than you or they think much quicker than you that you're the biggest success on the planet, which yeah. you're not. Yeah. When you're an entrepreneur and you're running your company, and I was running operations, mm. so everything that was going wrong was my fault. Mm -hmm. Every day you have shit happening. And, and I remember being like, I arrived in London, we launched the company. Two years later, I'm like at the hairdresser in Notting Hill Gate. And that lady is cutting my hair and she's like, what do you do in life? And I'm like, uh, I work for a design company. And she's like, oh, I, 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 just, I just found this new brand and it's amazing called Made. Apparently they do so well. And you're like, <laughs> actually, uh, she doesn't know we're struggling. She doesn't know that actually we're finally growing very, very fast in growth. Yeah. But that means that operationally speaking, it's very hard to uh, to handle. 
So we went through that first phase of like proving that we could sell products, going mm. back to that. And that was 2010. But our first deliveries of items all got lost. So I was in the, in the warehouse. I'm responsible for this. I was in the warehouse um, printing labels for the first batch of like, what, 50 armchairs made in the UK that we were delivering to customers. I had a friend arriving in London. That was, that was on the Wednesday. I had a friend arriving in London on Friday before leaving to the US. That's going to be important later on. And I was like, so we printed labels twice. We tested the, 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 the printer and then we dispatched everything. And on, on Friday, I started getting complaints or emails from customers that they, were, they had no news with their delivery. And I called the delivery company and they said, we actually have no tracking of your items in the system because you printed twice the labels and you, 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 you stick the first ones. And the first ones don't work anymore. So we dispatched 50 items or 100, maybe 100, and they all got lost. First dispatch, half of them or a third of them arrived with broken legs. And this was UK manufacturing, good factory, but we were learning <coughs> mail order with big items. And the legs hadn't been disassembled. So you go through this and you go through that and you deal with it, just refunding delivery costs, refunding customers and apologizing. And it's not a, it's not a problem. It's not a problem because you apologize and customers will forgive you once if you deal with it. They just won't forgive you twice for the same issue if you tell them you would deal with it. So we had that. Um, you get your first super high design product. Um, your, it's called, it was called, a, for us, the trailer desk from Stuart Padwick, the great designer who is still working with us. And you deliver it to that journalist who's going to write an article and, and <laughs> on it arrives broken. And she kills you. And then she, she kills you. And there is nothing you can do. And then you deliver another one and you get a phone call saying that the de delivery company actually has left the, the desk, which is maybe 55 kilos, unassembled on the pavement. And you obviously don't have anything to, 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 to deal with that. So any, any resource, so you have to go there and find people in the team and carry it and you're just gonna die. So you deal with these kind of things. But at the end of the first year, you dealt with all that, you, you, make, you made progress, you're selling quite a bit, you're spending a bit of marketing, it didn't work, then it worked. And so, th so this is done. Year two, so 2011, we actually grew quite a lot. What kind of numbers? First half of the year, we were running below 500k a month, which for a lot of people is a lot of money, and it's a lot of money and a lot of sales, uh, sales rather than, than money. Um, but we remember we're very ambitious. Yeah. And we, there was that thing about like going over 500k a month. I was gonna say, I don't know what happened, but actually I know in, in July 2011, it, it went up, it, it was going up month on month. And I think for the first two, three years, it always goes up month on month. But then it got up quite a bit on, on that was a factor of a few things. The first thing is, at the end of the day, we're a product company. So we're only as good at the products we sell. And we released two amazing collections. So then you get much more sales from these items at a bit more press. Secondly, July is a good season for us. I mean, January and July, even though we are not a discount company, people are, are in a mood of shopping in the UK, especially for furniture in January and July because of the sales. And thirdly, we kicked the ass of our marketing agency who was doing the job for us. Um, I'm not against marketing agencies, but they need to be closely managed because mm. their their job is to invoice you money mm. and put a bit less workforce in front of it to make a bit of margin. So they need to be controlled. And that, that went well, and then we grew a lot between July, August, September, November, December, we doubled the monthly turnover between October and December. And then we doubled again between December and January. So we did four times volume in, in, in three months. And that was amazing because wow. in January 2012, we were profitable for one month <laughs> before, <clears throat> before everything exploded. And, and I have no issue saying that, but 
we went from being good. I mean, it's, it's very hard to be a great customer service company in, in furniture. I think we're really good, but you always have issues, yeah. especially due to delivery on the fact that we deliver big items and they need to be delivered to home. But when things go wrong, everything goes wrong. Uh, we went from, we had too much volume, too much inbound queries, too much pulse delivery issues because our delivery company went kind of bust at that time. We were switching it, but a bit too late. Mm. We were supposed to have a phone number of the webs- on the website, but it was supposed to happen in two weeks. My operation manager was on holidays. Well-deserved, but he was on holidays. And we switched from answering emails in two hours to three days. When you have people sitting at home at 5 p.m., they've been waiting for the sofa the whole day, and it's not coming. Mm. And they send an email, and you're not going to answer. It's Monday, you're not going to answer before Thursday. I, I, I love just not because it's funny, just because it reminds you how frustrating it was. And when things go wrong, things go wrong. At that time, we were refunding people for anything when they needed it because that was our way of like dealing with that. We were lucky enough to have cash to do it. Yeah. Um, but when we were refunding people, PayPal, PayPal was had a has a problem with their API and they were not refunding people in the two days we were telling them they were refunded. So the thing is, it's like a snowball. So beginning of 2012 was a bit tough, was, was really tough. You throw a bit of cash to the fire to like uh, lighten it. You stop being too stingy in recruiting people. And we were very cheap in recruiting people. We had that rule where some of us had that, that rule that people had to come to, if they wanted to come to work for us, if they were really motivated, they should be able to decrease their salary. It's a really shitty rule. It's not a rule, but it was mm. kind of a mindset. And we were a bit underpaying and we were not ambitious enough in staffing the team. So, But then we had to staff it and we went too quick. And I went too quick in staffing my team. And I got from one operation manager, I got like a logistic one on a manager of customer service. Met them three times, had a very good fit, got recommendation letters from our recruitment agencies. On, I failed twice in the recruitment because I was a bit too much in a rush. On, on, I think I'll never read again a recommendation letter from the ex-employer <laughs> because mm. that doesn't mean anything. Mm. On the fit was not too good. So the, the person was were not a bad person, but the fit for a company like us was not a good fit. Took us six months. We went through things where everything at some point in May, everything we were sending through the hub of London was getting lost because these guys were had issues on everything you were delivering to UK customer for big items was getting lost in process. It, it happened on one day that I called, I remember we we sent emails the day before dispatching items, telling customers, tomorrow we dispatch it, expect it to be delivered that day or expect the process to be that so that they can take a day off if necessary. And so we, we sent email maybe to 200 customers on a Monday telling them that they would get it dispatched on the Tuesday, on Tuesday evening, just took the phone. I told the warehouse not to dispatch anything. It's like, it's going to get lost. And we called Addison Lee, which has a B2B service. And I was like, guys, I have a very special request. If, if we actually bring a container or a truck full of products in central London or just outside of the London, actually, and I get my customer service team to call customers to make bookings for deliveries, can you just do, this, do the job? We went to that point. Well, they said no. And it took us a while to just switch people we were working with. It's not, it's not because of them. Very often it's because of scale. Um, and then we, we, we made two big decisions in, in summer 2012. The first one was to open a showroom. Big decision in the life of the business. Where is that based? It was, the first one was based in the same office as ours, same building in Notting Hill Gate. That's the big building that is supposed, has been supposed to be destroyed for 20 years now, I think. Hmm. Amazing view. And we had a show, we, the office was originally on the 11th, hmm. then moved to the 5th, and then we had the showroom on the 9th. So it was an, an indoor show, I mean, an indoor showroom, an office showroom. Nobody knew there was something here. It was super cheap, a very good deal. 
But the thing for us was that to open a showroom was a decision that was pretty tough to make because the whole claim of the business, part of the claim was we have no shops because it's cheaper to sell online, which is not really true because online marketing is very complicated. And yes, having shops is a fixed cost. On, on, the, on the, the bigger problem was it, it was a very tough mind struggle because even before having a showroom, 50% of our sales were made of sofas. Well, people tell you you can't sell a sofa if you don't have a showroom. So you're like, why the hell? Mm. But we're getting so many feedback from customers. That's a very key point for us. A lot of people were asking us for it. So we, 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 we took a bet. We voted for the first time. I think that was the only time in the first seven years of the company where we had to vote for something mm. because it was a big decision, but not big enough to need like everybody to agree on it. It was a big bet. So we voted and we, we decided to open a showroom. And I think that's one of the best decisions we made in the business. Uh, we opened it in September 2012. It's been working very well. Now we have, we have a few in every country. Um, and the second was decision was to finally launch in a new country. We had people around us that had been pushing us to go abroad for years because it's obviously a business that can scale, that people think can scale, and there was no such business in any country. I mean, there were a few in, in France and a few in, in Germany, but they were all going down. And we didn't want to, because it was so hard to match the business already in the UK, that why should you just like split your mind on your resource, on your cash, on your hands to go abroad? And we didn't want to. We have a very complex business. It's, I used to say that usually when, 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 you, when you sell online, you have two jobs. You have those, as it's a new retail concept, you're either good, you were either good at re online retail or you were good at your industry. The metaphor is either you were old and knowledgeable on your new furniture or and you usually didn't know anything about selling online or you were that young, young dude who knew it but didn't know how to buy things. In our case, it was more complex. I think we have four hats. We needed to be good at furniture, supply chain, design, on e-commerce. Hmm. So master it first, <laughs> deliver your items correctly and then, then go abroad. But we decided to, to make that move in, in we said, so in, in, in mid-2012, we're like, let's do it. We hired a person. Did you raise some funding to do that? So we raised cash the first time in, in 2010 when we launched, two and yeah. a half millions. Then we re-raised seven in January 2012. I can't remember whether the justification for it was to go abroad. I don't, I, I don't think But presumably you must have had some decent, decent cash reserves to even consider it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. but the, the risk on cash is... There is a risk on cash when you launch a new country. The risk for us was, was even more important. It was <coughs> the, bigger, the bigger one was disruption for the whole business on the management team. And the second one was if you do it too quickly and you fail, you actually burn cash that could have been useful for the first country. And, and the your, third one... Your story collapses as well. Exactly. That's the third thing. You, it's a red flag. Mm. Like these guys won't go abroad. The story showed the opposite. Is we're actually in every country we're in, the growth has been the same since day one. Well, actually, it's, it's accelerating now. I mean, new countries uh, go much quicker. Go sure. much, yeah, but we have a bigger catalog. We know how to execute. But every country that we launch is actually moving up the same way. So that's really good. Was it a case of re like repeating the same playbook that you'd maybe not quite perfected in the UK, but you'd come close to mm -hmm. working out your systems? Yeah. Or were, were there specific things in individual countries that threw up their own obstacles and perversions? So it's, it's both. I think playbook is exactly the right word. That's what I use. You, it's very hard to go international. I mean, mm. uh, it's very hard to go in Europe, but I think there is a big play in being a European company. And it's a playbook because you have things you have to do in the right order. You have to plan, you have to do this, you have to do that, and you have to do this, and it depends on your business. 
And in our business, we can't open 20 countries at the same time because you can't ship to 20 countries from one location because you need local deliveries. That's the basic. Mm -hmm. Then you need local marketing. You need to build your brand in every country so that your, your awareness level goes up and you stop buying your customers all the time. Otherwise, you're just going to be burning cash in yeah. two countries. Are you made.com in every single country? There's no different permutations. It's the same in every single country. Um, in some of them, we have the .fr, the .this, and the .that, but it, it's the same brand. So it's a playbook thing. We, it, it went to, I think the, the, the beginning of the question was, did you replicate the business? We actually replicated the business 100%. We reopened, so we have a hub in the UK. We've always had one hub. Until a few years, it was it's still the same. It was still the same. So we, we opened a hub, a logistical hub, a warehouse that was managed by a third party. And then we had three delivery companies at the very beginning delivering different types of items to different locations in the UK. And everything sold in the UK was going through that hub. And we could have decided that it would, everything from the UK would go to Europe. No, we were like, okay, let's make it the same way. We're gonna launch in France and we're gonna replicate the business. We're gonna reopen a hub in France. We're gonna have local delivery companies. We're gonna have one inventory with things going directly to that hub and not being moving between the two locations. And we're gonna hire a team doing marketing, supply, customer service, logistics, and everything. Mm. And by the way, we want it to be so de-risked that we are going to pre-order everything. I think we launched in France, everything was sitting already in the warehouse so that right. there would be no delay, um, no risk of, of anything. And I think we must have been a bit really into making sure that this wasn't going wrong because even at the time in the UK, we were delivering 97% of the items in advance. But we wanted France to be even less risky. Mm. So we just replicated the business. And then when we opened new countries, we had the same playbook, with the exception that we have one, one central warehouse for the whole of mainland Europe. Right. It's better for inventory management on cash. It's not as good for in terms of, of, of P&L, because you have to trunk everything to the local countries. But is there um, a place where you could keep warehousing that's the most tax efficient, for instance, to have or property prices are low for a big warehousing so space? You don't have a big play on tax. And I don't even think we looked at that. The the play you can have is on VAT and you can have some bonded warehouse where you pay the import VAT later on when you sell the items. Okay. Um, we were not, we didn't deploy that way. Cost of labor, yes. But there is, I mean, it. we were a French business selling in, I mean, a UK business selling in France you need to be a French warehouse. I mean, the day you have, you're all across Europe, you might think of going in like cheaper country, but then the cost of trunking between your central location and the local country is very high. So that might over overpass the fact uh, that, that, yeah, that might be more important than the fact that you might be saving a bit on the, on the salaries. Did being, being a French founding team help you get into France in any different way than it would just a UK entrepreneur going there? Because we see a lot of companies we raise money for starting in the UK. And obviously, I think one of the first expansion points on their mind is either Ireland or it is, is France. Um, and it's, it's quite a difficult choice. I but guess. I don't know if there's any local benefit of, of just simply being able to... Yeah, you know the market. So, I mean, there are a few. So before going to France, we looked at... We were pushed to look at things like the US, India, China, Brazil, which were obviously too complicated for us. We're still not out of Europe at the moment. And there is a lot of growth to go for in, the U in Europe first. And then you look when you look at Europe, you look when you finally decide that if you expand is going to be Europe, you look at Germany... Look at Spain, maybe. You look at France, Netherlands. And we were three French founders. It's the same time zone as the rest of Europe. Almost the same time zone, sorry. It's two hours by Eurostar to Paris. It's one hour by Eurostar to Lille. Mm. 
it makes a huge difference. Mm. The, 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 the commuting time between your, your cities makes a big difference. And we knew the French market, that's the obvious first reason. So yes, it makes a big difference. And in terms of even to speak in the local language to yeah. manufacturers and, and... We don't have manufacturers in France, but you speak in local language to French delivery companies on, 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 on French people, might be nice people. And I love my country, we don't speak that good English. And it's still <laughs> the case. And it's quite hard when you have English team members speaking to a French service provider and I'm like sitting, I'm, I see that not at many anymore, but like, I'm sitting like that, seriously, <laughs> it's complicated. No, but the big thing was being able to know your market, know your customers, actually get your friends and family to get involved into buying. It always, you might be a big company already, I mean, a big-ish company already, it always starts with the, the, the very close network. Uh. Um, on, the, on the other thing was being able to be there. And being, being able to be physically in the country or in the city makes a big difference. It's quite intangible, but to do PR, to do events, it makes a big difference. Mm. You had your reservations about Germany, didn't you? Just because culturally, they, they apparently they, they're big into returning items or just... I had a lot of reservations. We had a lot of reservations uh, about Germany. So we launched in France and then we launched. So we obviously looked at Germany mm. and uh, we were very scared of German people. But, it, but it's an exciting market in terms of the purchasing power, yeah. presumably, but the offset was that this is reluctant. Yeah. yeah. So, so first of all, we went first to Netherlands, smaller country, closer in terms of uh, geography, small country, less people going there. So uh, easier move. And then we moved to Germany. And when you looked at Germany, it's like you say, it, again, it's, it's potentially a big win, but then the risk of failing is quite high. People tell you that you need to be a German brand or another German brand is, is working well. Um, you had big competition in Germany at the time on the same model or on other models. You think that the style will not match the German market? On the big, you, people tell you that marketing costs are going to be higher. On on space, especially as you said, the return rate is used. I don't know the numbers now to be three times the return rate of the other European countries in fashion. The sticklers for perfection. Fashion. On on the last thing is, German people don't want to pay straight away. They like to be sent an invoice when you deliver the items on to pay 30 days later. But you know what, I, 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 I didn't get it. And I was, I, I think I got it the day I was, I was talking to a German friend in London. I was like, you guys are nuts. <laughs> you, 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 you want, seriously, you want, you, you want to be able to return everything and you, you don't want to pay straight away on, on how do we do business? And she was like, you didn't get it. We don't buy online. We order online. Mm. So, I like those shoes, so I'm ordering five pairs of shoes and I get them home and I choose the one I want and I buy it and I pay it and then I return the rest. Story showed that um, story showed that we're actually working very well in Germany. Under uh, your premise and your model, not yes. uh, some kind of hybridized... Conversion rate is really good. Marketing costs are not too high. I guess that part of this is linked to the fact that our style is different from the German style, which actually gets us less competition. Mm-hmm. I have no clue whether that's the reason, but that's you, you need to try and understand why, and that's one of my bets. On the return rate is exactly the same as in most of the other countries in Europe, because I guess you don't pre-order, you don't order three sofas to choose the one you want <laughs> when it gets home. Yes, um, and what about in Italy? Because there are some quite, they have some quite sort of outmoded payment uh, methodologies. Yeah. So we also open in Italy in just after France. I mean, seven months or eight months after France. And it didn't work too well. Uh, I guess you have two reasons to that. One is the Italian market is a very tough market to sell online. 
You could also add that it might be a very tough market to crack in terms of furniture because they are quite big there and they have manufacturing. And I don't know whether that impacted it too much because the feedback you get is it's normal that in Italy your conversion rate might be three times lower than the rest of all of your markets in a lot of industries because in Italy at the time people were not used to buy online or pay by debit card by cards. Mm. They like to be paying by cash. What's this? Yeah. <laughs> so that was making it hard to convert at a decent at a decent uh, with a decent performance. Mm. We also made a mistake uh, on that is that we, we when we did our homework and that's why I say it's a playbook, we applicated the Italian business, we looked at the logistics, we looked at the, de- the deliveries and we just thought without thinking that payment methods would be the same in Italy as in France and the UK because France and the UK are roughly the same. Mm. You have Visa and MasterCards on PayPal mm. and you're done. And we launched Italy. We had the same ones, except that we didn't even have PayPal because it was harder to integrate because it was a deal with <clears throat> a license deal with an Italian media. The day we implemented PayPal, on the day we also authorized people to pay by bank transfer very manually, which means that if they chose the bank transfer option, they would actually get a confirmation email telling them that they had three days to wear the cash manually from their bank account to ours and we would be checking everything before we were unlocking the order. Otherwise, we were canceling it. The day we did that, conversion went up 50%. So that's an that, that's, that's execution mistake from our side. The other mistake was that we went to Italy for the wrong reason. We went to Italy because we had a media deal with a, one of the two biggest media partners over there, which were going to give us free traffic. Mm. And we didn't go to Italy because it was the right market to go to for all the reasons I said before. Media deals are very hard to execute well because you're usually unhappy of the quality of the traffic you get on the quantity and they are usually unhappy of the deal. It's, it's quite complicated to make it work. And we did it for the wrong reason. So we closed Italy and we're re- reopening it now. And, and you feel they're ready for new payment behaviors and more online or if, it's, it's similar? I think we're much better now and the team is really good and we know how to run our business much better on, on on, on it's, 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 it's a good moment to go. But you think their market's caught up in terms of the consumer purchasing? I, I have no clue. Mm-hmm. Fight TPC. I have no clue. Mm-hmm. I mean, it did. It did. How, by how much, you don't know. Mm. We, so we are, we're now in, in nine countries. So we have an English shop, French shop, German, Dutch. To the checkout of those shops, you can sell, you can buy in Ireland, Belgium, Austria, Switzerland. We just opened in Spain on his flying. Really? <clears throat> I say, I say I say we it's the team, but uh, yeah, w- yeah. So what is your your role now? Because you stepped out of your executive position, yeah. but you're still involved in some capacity. So the so you remember the the big decisions in the business were the first one is the showroom, the second one was to go international. But I think the best one and the most important one we took was to hire a managing director to help us. Three four years in the business, we were growing very fast. We were a hundred people. Things were tough. We we're spending too much time dealing with management on telling this guy that he shouldn't take the taxi to go to the airport on this girl that she would wouldn't get the f- mobile phone she wanted on us honestly and you had other things to mm. deal with and it was hard for us to learn all of this mm. plus coordination of teams and also go fast so we heard philippe chenieu who is now our ceo who is amazing he's doing an amazing job he was coming from mythic from match.com he was the ceo of match.com in europe we took us a few years and we reorganized the teams on our roles on i moved from ops to running the international expansion of the business and at some point it gets to it gets to a point sorry i'm repeating myself where the team is doing an amazing job which is rare 
Secondly, you actually have a choice of making a move, which is very, very rare too, because you quickly realize when you run your you launch your business that it's not a two years, three years story. And even if it's your baby, if it's a business that you created the four of you, plus investors, it will not be your family business. So at some point you might want to do something else. Doesn't mean you don't love it. Mm. I, I still say we, I still see them very often, but you want to do something different, but you don't have that option. So when you have it, you think about it. And the third thing was, you build for those years, bit by bit, you build your quality, the quality of your lifestyle because mm. you take less responsibility and it's really good. It's honestly really good to be able to wake up in the morning and you have not been thinking about work for the last mm. two hours. And that was happening because we had too much to manage. So this is really good. The other thing though that you build up is frustration because you switch from a position when you run everything and you make every decision to a position where you have to run decisions through a lot of people including people you haven't hired, which is the right way of doing things. And you have a governance and it's working well, but it's for somebody who has the entrepreneurial mindset, it's a bit complicated. So it takes time for me, it took three years. So Chloe left in 2015, Ning left in 2016, end of, end of 2016, and I left just after him at the same time, mm. early 2017. I went traveling for a year. That was really good. And Where did you go? Presumably nowhere you were having to do business development trips to. No. No, no, I went to uh, I went to Colombia, Mexico, Cuba, Morocco, Vietnam, Laos, <laughs> Indonesia, and Iran. I, I'm used to deliver the list. <laughs> and that was good. But honestly, I got bored after three months. Uh. I got actually bored after yeah, a month and a half. Because the last year I hadn't been too busy. You're just like transitioning everything and you're you don't have you don't have much stress on you s I remember sitting being sat down in my room in Mexico City and being like, What the what the hell are you doing? It's very weird. I think you, that gets you, it was a trip I did alone, that gets you to go through that introspection moment where you are like, you think it's a good moment to be alone with yourself, but it's really tough. Mm. Like, I'm 35, I'll be dead in 35 years. <laughs> Hopefully not. I know, but you're like, you go through weird things. Yeah. And you're like, I'll be useless in 15 years, which is not true. I don't need the holidays, and I'm sitting on holidays alone <laughs> without sharing it with anybody, and I don't want holidays. I'm like, I'm done, I just want to do something else. History did that, I, uh, personal things made it that I, I, I kept traveling a bit. Mm -hmm. And I came back to London a year ago, and I'm, 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 I'm doing a few things. I'm having a lot of coffees with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really interesting, especially founders, young founders of, of, of new businesses. I co-launched two new ventures. Um, I'm mainly helping p amazing people launch them. And that's it. And I looked, I'm, 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 I'm helping and doing a bit of consulting for a few companies. Just to close off the main, the Maid story yeah. before we dive into that a bit. Where do you see Maid headed? What would you like to see? We can go in a lot of directions. So it's it's quite it's quite a tricky question because the the direction is quite obvious, and then it's a very personal thing. Mm -hmm. The direction is quite obvious because we, so we're in Europe, we're in nine countries, we're not in every country in Europe yet. So we're launching, launching Nordic countries uh, in April, we're relaunching Italy. We have a few countries, a few more countries to go to. We're very small in every country. Mm. So even if you, so we're turning over, we turn over roughly 200 million euros last wow. year, growing 30% year on year compared to the previous year on turning profitable. We were profitable in cash last year and we we're also profitable in EBITDA this year. So that's really good. Mm. But the UK business is still 50% of the business, which is... So that was, so those figures were not counting, not including the UK figures? No, they are, inc they including, are including the UK okay. figures. Just makes it bigger in euros. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it's a round number in euros. Um, UK business is, is half of the business, but it's still 
100, even if, let's make it simple, 100 million in, in, in the UK is one person of the business, of the market. So you have mm. a lot of room to go for. Yeah. So we're on, we're not covering every country. On, we're not covering every category. On, when we were covering new categories like accessories, decorations, home textile, which we have launched like at least four years ago. Mm. People don't know us yet for those. Yeah. It takes, takes time in people's mind to to see you as a destination. So I think they see you as a destination for or style of upholstery or tables or chairs to make it simple. But a lot of people don't know that we have amazing textile on that we have amazing uh, accessories and we have amazing uh, kitchenware. So that takes time and we could go to other categories. Then the bigger questions are, do you want to go abroad onto the US? On the other bigger question that you would usually have, on, I, can't, I can't really disclose what we're looking into mm. and what, what, what we're gonna do is, do you want to keep developing your own products yourself or do you want to do you want not to become a marketplace but to start unborning brands on the website on the on the on the way we do it and i think we just there was a news just today on this is that we collaborate we start collaborating with other brands mm. to launch collections of products in categories that we don't know very well so the first time we did bikes bicycles in 2011 it actually worked very well and it was really bad because the quality of them was complicated and we're not bike makers, even though there was our flying skew. Mm. Now we redid it, but then we just decided that the best way of doing it was to collaborate with somebody else who knew it on the so brand. So you could do like made.com and Rafa make a new we could. Tour de France 2019. We could. Yeah, I think, I think the collection that went live today is backpack on accessories collection. Sometimes it's you go much faster in expanding your range through getting other brands in, but you need to manage a few things. You need to have a decent margin. You need the value to still be the same for your customers, and you really need to manage the branding on the customer experience. So I can't tell you what the decision will be, but mm. all these kind of things are flying around. But then we could decide other things. I mean, direction for the business could be to do B2B, could be to launch new brands, could, could be to launch services. Mm. And as a founder who's, who's, for the most part, stepped out of the business, are you sort of, you holding out for an exit, or do you want to see it grow within the sort of the framework that you set up for it and launch set in this way? So I think it's two questions in one because the exit can be, you can exit. You could, I could sell my shares mm. on, on the company would still go as made.com. Yeah. Or then you have the question or is it purchased by somebody else or not? Obviously mm. I'd, I'd love the brand to remain yeah. made on, on for the company to fly by itself. I think, I think we can do 20, 50 times the turnover we're doing now. We're, we're in, we are the only European furniture business with an online core element that is working across Europe. I mean, you have a few other brands that are well-known across Europe, but they are, I think, not as strong, not as fast-growing, or, or they haven't mastered the online plus offline element. So there is a lot of room to go for. And then you have the personal question of, do you want to exit your cash in the company yeah. or your shares? It, yeah, I can't. We, I can't answer for everybody because it's usually depending on what you want to do with it, on, on what you, what you, your life decisions. Yeah. But I can see, I cannot see any better place for you to invest for, your money. Yeah. yeah, for your investment yeah. to be than in a company that's, that's growing by 30 for 30 ish person a year. Yeah. So yeah. it's really good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and is there a, a hope of made.com kind of integrating technology? And do you see any future in home shopping meets AR? And stuff like this, because I know that some, I guess IKEA have done stuff like that. So, um, is that yeah. part of the made.com roadmap you see? I I have no clue. I think you would ask Brent, who you know pretty well. He would have a very different 
view on that because it's very into tech. And at the very beginning, he even wanted us to go for VR and AR. And I don't know the answer. Is, I'm, that, I'm, what, is that what MyDeco was sort of trying to do, but like just wait? MyDeco had, I think one of the three angles of MyDeco was to have to, they, have a, they had a room builder. One of the issues, I think, was that the tech at the moment for yeah. that was not ready yet. Yeah. I don't know whether actually, I don't know whether the tech is ready yet. Mm. I don't know whether people want to spend an hour building their room just to see how it looks like. And yeah. I don't know whether it's big enough to, to, for you to make it. My, my view on that is, and I'm sometimes right and often wrong, is that unless you have not a proof, but a real feeling that customers want it, and that's just not, mm. it's not, ju- not just you like doing that, but like getting feedback, don't, don't develop complex tech things that are not solving a customer issue. Well, the purchase behavior is already there, so you don't need to encourage them to purchase if they're already yeah. growing at 30%. So my, my view on innovation is, is very simple, is innovation is not, is not, is not, uh, is not the end. Hmm. It shouldn't be the end. Innovation is a way. Real innovation in, 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 in brands and retail is, is using a technology that has been developed already, untested, to improve the customer experience. Hmm to fulfill your customers better. If you look at all the, those companies out there, there is a big difference between a tech innovation on, on, a, on a service innovation. So Uber is not a tech innovation. Uber use tech on very well to build an amazing customer experience for customers. Spotify is not a tech innovation. It's a service innovation using tech. Shazam is a tech innovation. I mm. think it took them 15 years to, to get sold, even though it's amazing. Yeah. So I, I really believe in, in in innovate innovation through technologies that have been developed on using them the right way to deliver a better customer experience. In a way, Made was innovative in its business model thanks to the use of e-commerce. But we were not innovative because we're an e-commerce company. But e-commerce helped us do one thing. In an industry where if you were a traditional retailer and you were launching a new collection of like 10 SKUs, three sofas, three sizes, one color or something, let's say 10 SKUs. You had a hundred shops, you had to, if you wanted only one per shop, you had to pre-buy a hundred times, send a thousand of them for a month in advance, fill your shops, and then wait and see. If you sell them, you have to wait for more months. If you don't, you're stuck. What do you do? You leave it on the shop floor, to take it out, it's complicated. With e-commerce, we had the option of targeting the whole country with one shop, mm. and also to pre-sell the item. That was, that, was, that was the use we made on a very non-innovative thing. Which is a huge um, a way to overcome the cash flow crunches that some businesses have yeah. have when they're like cash flow is a cash flow yeah cash flow kills cash kills companies. I think I think a lot of the time companies that do need cash flow because they've got bad payment terms, um, they they can fall apart because the orders they get too big, and then they suddenly scrabble around having to sell yeah. equity and debt to try and meet the order size. Let's um, let's go back to what you're doing now. Yeah, um, I think we've we've covered some good ground or made. So how are you how are you filling your time? How do you describe to people what you do? <clears throat> other than just having plentiful coffees? I'm doing two things at the end of the day. I'm, I'm working on what I want to see as my new venture, whatever it is. Would it be a business or would it be a way of building companies? And I'm spending part of my time just helping entrepreneurs. And sometimes I get paid for it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. sometimes I don't. And I started with just having coffees with everybody and filling my days with like six coffees with six people because... <laughs> Because even though you haven't done that much in your life, you've done one company, you've seen a few, and, and, and people want to see you, and, and it's very hard to tell them I'm not available. Yeah. I'm not available before three weeks, and the guys don't understand, but it's just that you have other stuff, but and you love it. 
I'm, I'm helping schools, I'm helping incubators just because I, it's not I love giving back, but I like giving back. Schools really, within the context of entrepreneurship, so yeah. you're helping educate and like pass on. LSE. A bit, yeah. at the LSE, a bit at HEC, which is my ex-business school. I'm help, helping some co-working with your acceleration program. And I, you, you, you do that just because you like it. Mm. On, on, on at some point in life, for some people, I think they just want to, they just want to be part of helping the ecosystem on helping people, people, people grow. It's so easy, honestly, it's so easy to guide on help or on mentors, young entrepreneurs, because you can help them on everything. Even though you're not from the same industry, you help them on their business model, you have them pitch, you have them discuss whether they should hire somebody, you tell them that they should find a co-founder if they don't have one. You, you have a lot of things. And you just, you're just the wall they can bounce ideas. However, you can't, it's not a business model. And if you want to do something else, you can't spend your time doing it. So I'm also helping on a more formal way, a few of those. And I'm working on something else. And I'm, I'm especially working, while I'm looking at the new, the new big idea, I'm, I'm working on, I'm helping two companies. I mean, I'm, I'm partnering two companies. One of them is, I mean, they're a bit of a merger of two. I, I created, when I came back from my travels, a network of entrepreneurs mm-hmm. on the basis that when you're a business, that's scaling. I think the best, the best, the best business case is a business that's scaling because you have a bit of cash. You need help. Honestly, we need tons of help. And we had, and we had a great thing with us. It's not a thing, it's a person. And that was Brent. Because when we needed help, we had somebody who had a network, who had a network of people who could help us. Mm. On being able, when you have delivery issues, to contract for what? One K a day, one five K a day for a day, a week, or a day, a month. The guy who built Okado Delivery Fleet, <laughs> Ray, <laughs> for three months, is a super good deal. Mm. It's expensive on a day, mm. but on, 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 a, on a monthly basis, from, from, for what you get, it's not expensive. Being able to get the co-founder of Love Films, to come once a month or three months, see your whole marketing team and get his brain downloaded by the whole team yeah. for don't even remember the price, is, is priceless. We had furniture experts, we had ex-GM of German businesses come to help us launch Germany. And that was invaluable. And I was like, you know, you have a lot of entrepreneurs who made cash, uh, have a bit of time, don't want to p- work full-time, and re- are very happy to come and help you on a daily basis there. They don't want a full-time job, mm-hmm. and they don't want a one-year contract. But if you pay them correctly, they're going to come, and this is, is going to be invaluable. So that's what I built for companies who are willing to, uh, to, to, to answer a que- very specific questions and get very specific coaching. And that, should- that's the entrepreneur's partnership. Yeah. yeah. And I also met two guys, and we merged the two businesses together. Mike and Russell, who were building the um, first network of independent consultants. Their play was consulting. I didn't know the. I, I was not a big fan originally of like the generalist consultants. The mm-hmm. thing is, they're not generalists usually. Um, and I wanted experts, but their play was it's really useful, it's proven, but it's much too expensive. Mm-hmm. If you go to BCG or all those guys, you pay you you pay a premium because you pay the partners because that's the way the industry is done there. And they were like, we have a lot of, of consultants we know are really good. They're really expert of their, their fields. They can deliver really good results. But what if we were getting them to partner together as groups to solve problems in companies, but the markup is not going to be 50%, 100%, 200%, going to be 10%. And that's what they built. And we just teamed together to make it possible for scaling. I was going to say startups. So startups is always complicated mm. to finance it. But scaling companies to scale better, would it be to find growth or to deal with growth? or bigger corporates to innovate in whatever space they need to, inno- to, to innovate in, in their business. So that's the first one. We are, we're kickstarting it. 
and it's working quite well. The second one is called Lithium Partners. Mm. And that is very interesting because it's very different from, it's not, it's not furniture. <laughs> Some people say it's, it's, um, it's real estate. At the end of the day, what these guys are doing, what the team is doing there and what we're doing is we are, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use a metaphor we've made. In May, we looked at an industry, we took a very small innovation to just change the way the, in, the industry was working. And it's not a huge change, it's a small one, but that made a big difference. Lizon Partner is operating in the field of asset management. So people managing assets, on investing in them, on getting returns for those investments. So if you, let's just look at funds, investment funds. Mm. In the world you have, depending on where you find the source, you have roughly $60 trillion of assets under management. That's 60,000 times, 60,000 billions, mm -hmm. or 60 millions, millions dollars being managed. Asset manager usually on those assets take management fees of 0.5% to 2% per year. Calculated that goes very, it's a huge market of recurring revenue. And then you take usually 20% performance fees on the performance, annual performance, which on average is two digits. When you have a lot of cash and you invest it in funds, you get big returns. The issue for those guys is those fees are going down, competition is, is going up, returns are going down. Only, one of the only way, one of the only way of getting, staying afloat on getting the same revenue streams is to increase their asset under management, mm. which is very limited today because if you run a fund, let's say you open a, let's take the example of the first fund, uh, the first fund we're launching, which is a, a real estate fund. It's a 250 million fund investing in New York real estate with one of the best commercial real estate in New York with the best track record. Usually those funds are more than this, more of a, th a billion, but it's, it's 250 for a first time fund is, is quite a big mm. number. If you go to institutional investors, you, I mean, if you have a traditional uh, fund structure, you, you, you have to go for big investors because managing investors is complicated. Mm -hmm. It's paperwork, it's cost, it's, it's, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna take a shortcut, but it's, it's just complicated. It takes a lot, it takes time on this costly to issue shares, on this costly to trade them. That's why you don't have thousands of investors. That's why you don't go to the accredited qualified small ones. If, if I want to go and I have one, 1K, people are gonna laugh because mm. it's too costly for them to manage me. So they are using blockchain. And I say blockchain, I'm, I'm not saying cryptos. They are using the blockchain tech, which at the end of the day, when you dig into it, is a very simple tech, which has two parts, which is this global registry of transactions and also thanks to the Ethereum blockchain, you have what you call a smart contract, which is in short, making smart and fast execution of contracts less costly mm -hmm. and more efficient. And they're using that to make uh, managing investors much less costly. Like getting a new investor on investor training their shares between each other becomes, it's not zero cost, but it's much less costly. So it makes almost no difference if you tokenize that fund to have one big investor putting 1 million or a thousand investor putting 1,000. Mm -hmm. So then you can go to all those individual guys and finally allow them. So for asset managers, it's amazing. They, get, they have more people who can invest. And for individual people who currently have roughly no choice if you want to make yield, let's say you have 100K today and you want to invest it, your, 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 your bank is going to give you, what, 1%? Your wealth manager is going to pitch you 3 to 5 on this very risky steal on the market is fluctuating. And if you want to do close to eight, you need to go to property crowd lending, crowd lending for individuals or SMEs, and that's very risky. Mm -hmm. But all those big guys, they have 10 to 12 to 15 uh, person yield because they invest on 10 years, close-end funds, and they can do it and you can't do it. So 
they're giving access to all the small investors to a big well, somebody said that um, on top of Warren Buffett's <laughs> ability to um, get get access to good deals he's moving such significant portions of money that he can then negotiate better terms with the, the assets he's purchasing the distressed buy-ups yep. and stuff like that so he cuts himself <clears throat> a better deal for more than just the ability to move a large sum of money and true it can, can make even more margin than so you can't you can't cut all that bigger guys will always be able to negotiate some stuff but what you do through that is if you're actually getting everybody to invest in the same fund hmm. you're giving access to individual investors to the same terms yeah as the big funds so you're democratizing that's pretty it. cool you're democratizing yeah. it. so it's 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 starting because it's taking a lot of time it's complicated tokenizing a fund doesn't mean that the rules are going to be different mm-hmm on the rights are going to be different. It gives you the same access to the same rights on the same rules in raising cash. It's complicated. Raising co- raising money comes with a lot of rules yeah. and it's good. Yeah. It's the, for, the form, the take into it is complicated, but then the, the, the whole um, administrative part takes time. So, the, so, yeah. so when's it launching? We are we are still in the process of finalizing legal. Yeah. Um, takes a bit of time. Um, they have really good feedback from investors, okay. especially the big guys. Um, but it usually takes a lot of time, you know. When you when you raise your first fund, you have people who go on the road for like two, three years. Yeah. The target is to do it within a few months, but we'll see. Do you anticipate a you know a communication hurdle to overcome because it's on the blockchain? Like, even though that's a key part of the proposition, it's like you know it's a it's a, it's a still a, new, yeah. a relatively new technology. So what's interesting? So we we on I started looking at it a year and a half ago. You know, when, when it was the big hype thing mm-hmm. bringing to cryptos. What you quickly see in that world, you have a lot of people who made a lot of money with either too easily, either a very dodgy way. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so crypto on in blockchain, it's not, that's not blockchain. You have obviously things that have not been done the correct way just because it was less regulated. Mm. It's been very interesting for me approaching those words where you actually go to marketing agencies who would help you market your product to 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 people to for to raise money on the guys who are investing you. They were trying to invest us invest us four times the normal fee of a marketing management agency just because why? Just because they were dealing with people who didn't know how to do marketing and right. because there was so much cash that it was so easy that so I, I didn't like it. The good thing though is if you if you do it with professional people on the team is made partly of people who know blockchain on tech. Mm. It's not made of crypto experts. It's made of finance people who know how to raise funds on manage funds. On how on we have like two people who did fundraising on rent funds. We have people who run uh, real estate investment with the best performance out there. We have quants on people who know how to code. Mm-hmm. And when you talk to them, you're like, these guys have seen all the people in the in the industry, and most of the time they would tell you that this is crap and this is crap, and these guys have no clue what they are doing. Because, yeah, it's a bit of a... On some level, you need people with the connections to get hold of, of the assets to be purchased under the, you know, with the investor's pool of money, which is also important to have the, yep. the, high, the high level relationships. But actually, when you, so when you talk to feedback ones, that when you talk to institutional investors, these guys have access to two things. The first thing we sell is they have access to potential liquidity on their asset. Mm-hmm. If they want to get tokenized shares or digital shares, they will have more liquidity because they will be able to trade those shares on the market before those five years lockup period on everything. They don't really care. Actually, they only go, they mainly go to that fund because the investment manager on the portfolio manager we've contracted with is, is 
a guy called Michael Chitrit with an amazing track record in the US, on in New York. The liquidity is mostly attractive. On the, the liquidity on the ability to invest from lower tickets is mainly attractive to smaller investors. Um, and do you have any concerns? I, I guess with this particular example of the blockchain, it's not so scalable that you have to worries about the robustness and scalability of the technology. Because I know some of the criticisms of, of blockchain has been that it can't carry out enough transactions for like really, really complicated systems. So is this an example where there is a perfect size of, of ecosystem that the blockchain can exist in and deliver on the transactions? It's a, it's, we're, not, we're not creating Bitcoin, no? so uh, mm. we, it, it, it won't be as complicated. It's fully transparent. The risk of losing your cash because the whole thing collapses is is minimal if non-existent because we have the registry. I mean, you know, yeah. the, the thing you have to go through if you want to run a real security token offering or fundraise, <laughs> sorry, for securities, is big. You have to pass KYC on AML and at any time you need to have full documentation on who is holding the token or mm. are the people authorized to do that because we can't, you can't sell it to people who, who are not qualified to invest. So yeah, it's, it's much less risky. Um, so clearly like, there is an exciting future with a kind of blockchain enabled technology. With your view on having had all these coffees and meetings with people in the startup ecosystem, what, what is exciting you above and beyond this that you're seeing other people doing that you may not be directly involved in, but is catching your attention? So there are a few, there are a few industries I'm looking at too. Okay? Some of them because they are product related on, on that's what I've been doing. Some of them just because I think they're very exciting. And we're actually, I'm working with, with the team I'm working with uh, on, on all of those, we're, we're actually looking for people to help us. So if, if you know any, if anybody here is a great founder or wants to start a company or a culture company and is really interested in those fields, happy to, uh, happy to have a chat. And there are mainly food and beverage, education, has nothing to do with this. Um, there is a clothing uh, project, which is quite interesting. Um, SME financing on recruitment, on HR tech. So. I think we might not have the time to dig into all of those, but I think these are, for different reasons, industries where we reach a point where tech and services have been enough developed to create new businesses that are going to improve massively the customer experience. Mm-hmm. Um, education is something I'm, I'm really into. I think it's, it's I think I'm sorry for the word, but I think it's fucked. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the biggest issues we have today. It costs too much money. It's not well done. It hasn't been digitized yet. I mean, it hasn't been revolutionized yet because there is no cash and because the governments were supposed to be dealing with it, don't have the cash to do it. And it shouldn't cost 400,000. I mean, what did I read last time? It was like the FT article, it said raising a kid in London from four to 18 years old can cost you between 250K and 450K mm. in, in, in school fees. Who, who has yeah. 450K of net salary post everything yeah. for one kid? So it, it doesn't make any sense. Um, so that's education. I think HR and recruitment is still not well done and there is a huge thing to do and we have a few ideas on that. How, how is that? So I'm working with a, a tech company at the moment or hybrid. The problem is that some people try and move to the tech recruitment solution very self-serve and it always seems that somebody has to step back in to try and smooth the process over yeah. because when it comes to self-serve it goes to, to what LinkedIn has become and people don't reply <laughs> and then if it's too hands-on you just think well you've got your hand in my pocket. Yeah. Um, so yeah, wh- where do you think the, the alignment on that is? So, I think I might be a bit different to a lot of people who think that they are going to digitize 100% something which is very manual mm-hmm. and that's the only way to scale. I think being able to have people to step in is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. I think that in some cases, tech is going to help you scale or it's going to help you recruit more people that are going to deliver a better service. But yes, you might need to scale your workforce, you might need to scale your procedures. On, the, on I mean, there are only so many few good ideas that only 
or only tech related or can make billion dollars companies. In most of the case, you, you, you will not, you need to have people to scale it. For instance, take a, the last, the last, I mean, the last one, potentially the most important of the areas I'm looking into, which is mental health. Mm. One of my dream would have that everybody would have access to a coach that's professional. And one of my dream would, that, that would, have, would be that everybody has access to a therapist. I think it's good. I think the good thing is now is become, people are a bit more outspoken about it. The problem is, is cash on the fact that it's, it's complicated. And if you go to your therapist and she tells you, yeah, so 100 pounds, see you next week. Who can do that? Um, actually, I'm helping. I invested a small ticket in a company called Spiel. Amazing teams, amazing founders on, on the team in general. The guys are passionate about it and they are doing things the right way. One of the challenge for them when they pitch investors is what they do is actually they give you access to a therapist mm-hmm. for a cheap price on a monthly basis, text base for the moment, which has a lot of qualities. And people would tell them the problem is if you want to scale, you need to scale the quantity of quality therapists in the process. Yeah, and yeah, that means that you can't have a thousand tomorrow, but is it a bad thing? You might end up with a hundred therapists dealing with like a thousand to two thousand clients. Mm. It's really good and it's feasible, but it's it's no, I don't know what the, what the saying is, but no big wins come with like no pain. It's complicated. Mm. If you go to two easy industries, first of all, business-wise, you're gonna have too much competition. Yeah. And by the way, solving big issues doesn't come easily. Sounds like those therapists might need a bit of therapy by the end of that. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you, you're right because you're creating your own demand for supply that you can then potentially serve, which is even better because the, the, the conversation we're having is that not everybody's universally comfortable or has acknowledged the need for, for therapy to yeah. optimize them. But as the conversation builds and it is building, then you're naturally gonna need more therapists at which point there's more incentive for more people to train to become hopefully high quality therapists and you could bring them together yes. under your banner head of qualification and standard. And well, I'd go one step further, saying that the, the, the three great things, the third one is the tech is now helping these interactions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The first one is people are more open mm-hmm. about like needing therapy and I think it's really good. It's not needing therapy, it's like having a coach. On the third one is, it's not even that we need more people, it's a lot more people today want to become a therapist or a coach. And I, Four new people, I four people last month who told me I want to become a coach. Mm-hmm. I'm actually training to become a coach. I want to switch my job and I'm gonna quit banking and I'm gonna become a therapist. So you don't have to, mm-hmm. you don't have to, t- you, you shouldn't create trends, okay? Mm-hmm. It's the toughest thing would be, obviously it would be great to say, if nobody wanted, but it would be great to say, I'm gonna find a way of getting everybody to, to move to therapy or to move to coaching or to move to healthier living. Don't try. I mean, I'm, uh, you don't change people's habits. Mm. Just help the wave. On on the wave is there. Yeah, it's small, but it's there. So help them. And at the same time, on the other side of the scope, you have more people willing to help. So mm-hmm. see, good. even even on on the podcast, we had David Hickson, who was working um, at My Decker with Brent. Yeah. he came on. And he spoke very very candidly about his experiences, quite harrowing experiences with his own mental health. And then he mentioned that after he'd. Um, so after he then recorded it on the podcast um, and he mentioned that a few people had come up to him and spoken and then we actually just by pure happenstance we had one of those guys who'd approached him who was who worked at Spotify called Andy Watson we haven't published it yet but publishing it soon and just by having those conversations people are, people are more open to having them even on a public yeah. uh, medium like this and then it begets that sort of 
healthier approach to it. I think people move from being like shy of that and like <laughs> it's a bad thing to being actually proud of saying, yeah, I'm seeing somebody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And most of the time the answer of their friend is like, hey, how is it? I've been thinking about it. Do you have, yes. do you have a name? Yeah. yeah. And the thing, one of the problems is we call it therapy. The thing is, if if we had better language, life coaching, or whatever, if you had more mentors or people you can talk to, yeah, yeah. it would be easier. What do we what we don't realize for most of us in that small world is first of all, some of the people here with a lot of friends on even good influence or good work on good uh, good uh, success at work feel very lonely. Yeah. But you have even more people who don't have that many friends they can talk to. When I have a problem, I can go to my friends. Mm -hmm. yeah. When I don't know how to deal with that at work I'm calling somebody I'm like what would you do um, yeah. if I have a last pro life problem with like girlfriend or whatever you have friends to talk to but a lot of people don't yeah and we are we are steadily deconstructing that a little bit by a little bit you know the more people globalize the more people spend time with technology I think we are yeah. taking away from those systems that historically would would lend support to your your issues so I think it, we're further kind of calcifying the problem that you've um, just identified and I think another thing that is right is it does sort of, it seems like people are undergoing repair work at the moment, but any great story of a, a sports team or anybody who's really achieved a lot in their life, it was a series of, of discrete processes. Every morning they woke up and achieved on a daily basis of, of sort of self-optimization. Yep. Yeah. And I think if we saw therapy as something that continued to improve those daily outcomes and the sum of those daily outcomes was was a good life, then, then it would make a lot more sense than just thinking you're fixing something that's that busted. Yeah, I mean, it's becoming a cliche in this podcast because we mention it so much, but everyone has mental health, like their own physical health. And if you if you work at it in the same way that you work at your, you know, going to the gym, going swimming or whatever, then you're going to experience tangible benefits day on day. Well, an even more interesting conversation is is the getting more comfortable with the link between mental health and physical health in terms of our sports performance and, and the things we can measure of overtraining syndromes and how that could relay into depression. I, like, I think there's more work to, to make those cohesive as well. I have tons of things to do. I, I don't think it's addressed well yet, to be honest. Yeah. The good thing though is, is, is like in a lot of the, those new industries, <laughs> nobody cared. Mm. And now you have a mental health tech uh, fundraisers and then nobody cared about education and then you have ed tech and it's mm. a big thing. On, ed on tech HR seems tech. really hard to get going though. We've seen a lot of people trying tackle it and the feedback we get from investors is this is a really nice example of how we can improve you know education for four to six year olds but then they just feel overwhelmed by the size and the scope and the scale of what you're trying to achieve and then annoyed okay. by the bureaucracy of the, the education systems that I they bump into yeah got two things here i i think that there are still a lot to do which is easier than just creating tech so i i'm actually i'm, I'm looking at schools i think we could build a new school format needing a I just need a great program manager that would actually make a change okay it won't change the planet mm. but it's gonna change the life of some people uh, so we could do that and then the problem with edtech is is I'm gonna be very cynical I think it's cash I think that if government doesn't fund it on um, government don't not fund uh, they don't not fund things because they don't want to it's mm. just a question of cash they have on allocation it needs to be funded by private companies or VCs and education is so hard is so hard because you might come with a new tech, a new service. You might have like three more people working on it next to you, and it's very, very hard to identify. It's much harder to like see what commission could come up in education in next year and could burn your business than in product or food or whatever. Um, it's so hard that it's hard to make money, and mm. therefore money doesn't flow in uh, in education. Even though there is a lot of cash to be made, the problem is if. If you want to make a lot of cash in education, most of the time you need to focus on like a rich niche. 
yeah. if you want to change the system, it's going to be much more mm. complicated. And what do you optimize for with education? Because at the moment, the, the outcome of a positive education, if it was spending a lot of money on it, is the kids' grades. And we're assuming that grades are a perfect measurement of yeah. roundedness. And that's the biggest problem. It's like the output is unclear because it could only be realized maybe 20 years down the line. Yeah, which yeah, is a good point. Um, so let's let's do this quick fire, but uh, for once we will make it quick fire. So you can have a prediction for the future from you. Oh my God, I don't know. I think mm. the word is crude. Uh, <laughs> no, naturally. I think you have two ways of looking at it. First of all, I don't know. Yeah. So I don't know whether we're going to Brexit and I think it's going to be terrible. Yeah. Or I don't know which way the GBP is going to go. And I don't know um, whether the word is crude because everybody is becoming a bit selfish in a way and, mm. and countries are closing and you have this cult of the entrepreneur, which is good, but you can look at it the other way. If you look at LinkedIn, everybody's got a title. Everybody's got five titles at the moment. It's, it's a, I find it a bit weird, but at the same time, at the same time, so what worries me, for instance, is education. What I love is those new things about like new trends, ecological waste on everything. I think changes are going super fast. Mm -hmm. on, 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 on this is really good. And I think I have no clue which way it's going to go. I think when you're reaching a tipping point, it's usually a bubble. And I think we live in a bubble. It usually bursts. Mm -hmm. and I, I would love it to go down slowly, but that's not the way it goes. So let's see how it, how it happens. But you have a new generation of people coming out, coming up, who instead of, like us, going to the pub on Friday and getting drunk, um, or actually climbing on uh, drinking a matcha tea, and they just want to change the world. Mm -hmm. And they're like, I don't, I don't care about like, being rich on everything. I don't, I don't think there is one or the other one she's right. I just think it's, it's, it's going in the right direction. Um, and you. what about a startup book or resource that, that you would, would recommend to people? Okay, super short. If you want a book on its... Uh, an inspiring book. If you want to launch a product company, go on, go on, read um, Shoe Dog, mm. uh, the, the story of Nike. And it, it's quite nice and it's actually quite relaxing. Mm -hmm. You don't get stressed if you read it before going to bed. Right. If you want something to help you build your business, you have a lot of management ones. But something that goes with an ID, which is for me very, very important, is, is the importance of feedback in the, customers, in the customer journey. If you sell products or services, on, there was this amazing book that I have been recommended at a time called A Complaint is a Gift. Hmm. Don't remember the author, but it explains you how you build your businesses through receiving feedbacks from your customers. But more generally, I'm, I'm less into like giving you books. I'm mm -hmm. gonna tell you that the best way of like growing your business is go get a coach or go get a mentor. Go get a mentor or two or three, whatever. Mm -hmm. Ask people. There is a great thing today is it goes a bit with the new therapy, people coming on willing to be therapists is like, People who have succeeded or actually are just doing their job on, are just a bit ahead of you in the timeline of working, not, not even the success. Yeah. They might have failed or very willing to give feedback, to, to give back a little bit. That might be the best advice you've ever given, but what about the best advice that you've received? I've received a lot of advices <laughs> um, on some time. They are contradictory. <laughs> uh, I think one of the best ones were, is, I, I get two. On, on they actually go together. The, my first boss, when I told him that I don't want to do furniture all my life, I want to be an, inverse, an, an investor like you, he was like, you know what, do your job well. Do your job well, and if you do your job well, whatever you're doing, even if it's purchasing furniture in a factory, you're gonna get, you're gonna, it's gonna be much easier to get another job, even if it's very different. Yeah. Because what's more important is being good at what you do and being trustable. Mm -hmm. So that's the big thing, and it goes with something that everybody says, but it's really real, which is do what you love. Because 
you might be an employee, you might be a founder, things are gonna get very tough mm-hmm. at some point. And if you don't do something that you love, you're just gonna burst. Which goes with, sorry, it's gonna be a third one, know why you're doing things. So if you get a job, what? why are you taking that job, okay? It's not gonna be perfect. And, and you might like that or not like that, but if the first thing is much more important, that's gonna help you go through the second thing. Yeah, and last but not least, we like to ask anybody listening to the podcast if um, they could do anything to help you uh, on your future. What would that be, and what would that look like? Oh, I don't know. Give, give me feedback if you think what I'm doing is shit or good. <laughs> no, what can I ask people to help me on? More coffee. No, it's not going to be an ask. Is if you if 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 you have questions, and if you have things you want to go through, and if you just want feedback, or if you want, yeah, you have a challenge in your business, just like send me send me something. Can be an email. Um, my email is still julian at may.com, J-U-L-I-E-N. It can be a LinkedIn or whatever. I'll I'll I might answer. I might not. If I don't, just shoot another one. It's just because a lot of people have a lot of emails. Mm. Um, I can either help or direct you to somebody who who can help. And um, I like it. It's just a question of time. The second thing is, if you have anybody out there who's really keen in one of the industries we've been discussing, I'm very happy to have a chat. Awesome. Brilliant. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah, on. thanks for your time. And um, I feel like we were just getting into a lot of interesting stuff that we've had to cut short. Um, so we will follow what you're doing with interest and perhaps have you on again in the future. Thank you, guys. Thank you for awesome. coming on. Cheers. If you enjoyed this or any of our other conversations, we'd love to get your feedback. Our Twitter handle is at the Startup Mike, M-I-C. Or get us an email, audiored at startupmicrodose.com. If you're feeling particularly generous of spirit, A review on iTunes would go a long way to ensuring that we can continue to bring you these conversations. Finally, this recording could not have happened without the support of Founders Factory backed Entail. Their podcasting software and studio in the Daily Mail building, London, are as ever the unassuming stars of our show. Check out entail.co. And thank you for listening. Goodbye.